Well, hello, everybody. Today is Tuesday, September 8th, 2015. This is Getting Geeky, and I am your hostess, Miranda Janelle. I'm finally going to be playing the Andy Weir interview. Uh, Damien and I recorded this with Andy Weir on Sunday, July 5th, 2015. Uh, We had a lot of fun. Uh, It was the first interview that either of us had ever done. Uh, I I don't want to speak for Damien, but I don't think either of us really knew quite what to expect. Uh, but what we found uh, was someone that both of us got along with really, really well, and uh, we had a great time. In fact, uh, I'm going to go ahead and just start the interview now. It's going to go, uh, I think it's about 45 minutes, maybe 50. And uh, it's it, it, when we start, it just goes right into it. You know, he starts off with a joke and we just start having a good time. So without further ado, here we go. Just before we called, uh, my roommate was showing me pictures of your cat. Oh, oh uh, that Demi there? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's Demi? Yeah, that's Demi. Demi, okay. There's Demi. Oh, look at that. She's doing her thing. Yep. She's uh, making sure that that left leg needs special attention today, apparently. And I've got another one. He, 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 Looks, he was he was I on screen for about a tenth of a second. Yeah, there. he just popped popped that. his head in. Yep, he's back there by the food, so he's nice. Be coming over here anytime soon. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Jojo and Demi, I did not name them. Those are those are the names they had when I got them. I see. Yep, they're rescues. So. I had a I had a cat named Peta once, and it certainly lived up to its name. Pain in the ass. Oh, P I T A. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were like P E T A. Oh no. <laughs> a superhero cat flying or around P- the or P E E T A from like uh what the uh, Hunger Games? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you took uh PETA and Katniss from the Hunger Games, their like Hollywood power couple name would be penis. <laughs> 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 you know what i think I, I i honestly think i need to lead with that that's <laughs> okay given how irreverent that we can get on getting geeky i don't think that there's a you know a, a better way to start the first interview <laughs> <laughs> we've uh we've been joined by andy weir author of the martian um <laughs> Hi, how you doing? Thank you for joining us. This is thanks, uh, thanks for having me. I just have to say, I really, really enjoyed this story. It captivated me like no story has in quite some time. Oh, thank you. Glad you liked it. <laughs> yeah, it was um, easily the best science fiction I've read in quite some time. Thank you. Right. Yeah, I'm a huge science fiction fan. <laughs> Our listeners already know that, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, that that. that goes for both of us i i definitely have a uh a, a major star wars uh slant which uh made me really appreciate um the scene where the uh director's talking about buying the team uh a bunch of star wars or star trek oh. memorabilia and is actually i'm more of a star wars fan yes yeah. <laughs> original trilogy of course <laughs> uh, i think that pretty much goes without saying <laughs> Oh. We'll see what Abrams does, you know. 
you know, he's a he's a true Star Wars geek through and through. So dude I, must have found a genie when he was a kid or something like that. He like gets to direct Star Trek and Star Wars, right? It seems to me that you're the one who popped the genie here. Um, you're, you're actually my new hero. Um, you're living the amateur sci-fi writer's dream. I mean, I am kind of an amateur sci-fi writer. I have my own book that's as yet unfinished. But, you know, you managed to write your own book uh, one chapter at a time, and you got some fans from it. Uh, you put it up on Amazon as a Kindle version for 99 cents, and I'm not sure if people know this, but basically anybody can do that if they format their book into a Kindle format. You can put it up on Amazon for sale. Um, but you know, next thing you next thing you know, your book's on the New York Times bestseller list, and your book's being made into a major motion picture by Ridley Scott. I mean, this is every sci-fi writer's dream, let alone to happen with their premiere book. I mean, was this a difficult road for you? I mean, we've always heard, I've always heard, that it's hard to break into writing, especially science fiction writing, a very niche part of writing. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case here, or or was it? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I really feel like I, I, I don't know exactly what I did right, and I feel like I kind of bungled into this. Um, but uh, so it wasn't like the first thing I've ever written. So let's see, Take, taking your questions kind of one at a time. You said, is it hard to break in? Absolutely. Um, earlier in my life, I actually I quit my job and I spent three years trying to break into the writing world. I wrote a book, uh, Not the Martian, a, a previous effort. And um, it was the kind of standard story of a, of a struggling author. No one was interested. I couldn't get an agent, couldn't get a publisher. After three years, I, um, I I gave up on it and I went back into computer programming, which wasn't uh, you know a big failure to me. I, I like computer programming. I like that industry. It's just that I had earlier I had come into some money from being laid off at a, a convenient time from AOL, <laughs> uh, and I got a really nice severance package. And I said like, all right, well I've got enough money to go a few years without working, and let's 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 take my shot. So you were trying to do it the traditional math method at yep. that point. I was trying to do traditional math, yes. And um, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and when I uh, when I did, um, you know, I went back into the software industry, and this is around. Um, I I kind of that ended that three year sabbatical ended right around uh, two thousand one, two thousand two, and uh, once I got, uh, you know. Around that time also is when people started having their own web pages and um, making, you know, that's when the the World Wide Web started to come into common usage. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, here's an avenue where I can write and have an audience and, and I don't need to be a professional. It can be a hobby, right? So I did that. And I would post stories to my website. I made web comics. I made short fiction. I made serials. And The Martian was just one of those serials. So I think... Um, you know, a lot of people think of it as an overnight success, but among other things, I spent about 10 years before before ever before writing the first line of The Martian. I had spent 10 years accumulating readers. This wasn't an intentional thing. I wasn't like, yes, I shall slowly accumulate. No, it was just <laughs> <laughs> it just worked out that way. I, I was just um, I I had a readership of about 3,000 based on the size of my mailing list um, around the time I started The Martian. And they really liked it. And of course, so, so things went from there. But so I, I, I think that's part of it for sure uh, is like building up a reader base. <clears throat> but uh, yeah. And then, of course, the success of the book, I, I, have, I have no I have no explanation for that. I don't know why 
it does so well. When I wrote it, like, so my readers are hardcore nerds, right? They're, they're, they're like science, science geeks and stuff like me. And so I wrote it for them. I, I, I was like, okay, you know, that's why there's so much technical detail in the book and stuff. Like, I was writing it for people who are into that. Right. And I, I, I would, I never would have imagined it would have any mainstream appeal at all. I, I, I thought it was just solely for the uh, tech geeks who want to see, you know, the math and stuff like that. I, I st still don't really understand why it did so well. <laughs> uh, I'm not complaining. Um, I just, um, I kind of wish I knew what I did right because, you know, I'm working on my next book now and, uh, we'll find out if I'm a one hit wonder or, uh, <laughs> if, if I've actually got some well, ability. It certainly Personally, did. I... Go ahead. It, it certainly did capture a, a lot of people. Um, uh, it captured their imaginations, uh, and it also, uh, uh, captured their own interest in science. Uh, you wrote an essay, uh, that appeared on salon.com, how science made me a writer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, one of the things that I really took away from that essay was, uh, you mentioning, uh, how you had received formal proofs of, inaccuracies and you went back and updated the story sure now yeah. coming from a programming background it struck me that that uh you not only had peer review it it almost the impression i got was that it was kind of almost like an open source project in well, in a way it was it was like qa in fact i even called those uh my 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 uh, core readers i called them beta readers Right. <laughs> that's and, awesome. Yeah, that's kind of, and it was like engineering. It's like you know, oh, there's a flaw or a plot hole or whatever. Well, that's a bug, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was really cool that the 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 that those readers, my scientifically minded readers, would point out any errors. And that was great. I had some, uh, yeah, I had a few errors that that uh, or several errors that they pointed out and that I fixed during. Um, when I was writing it and then later on, um, you know, after public, uh, after, after it ended up being a print novel, then it was like, well, now they're like set in stone. So I can't really do Kinda anything about it, it. Yeah. Right. but I can, I can make note of it. <laughs> now, did you, did you have a hard time, um, balancing, uh, scientific accuracy with, uh, moving the plot forward? Um, yeah, yeah that, that was probably the biggest challenge of writing the book is, um, like I needed the reader. I, I didn't want to assume, you know, a, a deep scientific knowledge by the reader. And so that means there's a bunch of exposition. There's a bunch of like, I need to explain this math or physics concept in enough detail that the reader understands the problem that the protagonist is having. Right. And but at the same time, I didn't want to go too deep because I didn't want it to read like a Wikipedia article. So the solution there was humor, like just the the irreverent snarky um um narration style and so it's like yes i'm giving you information that you might not find that interesting if you're not you know a science dork but um <laughs> every you know every every minute or so you're going to get a joke or some smart ass comment that hopefully will make you laugh and that'll keep pulling you through the other thing is so i had to do a lot of math and science and research and uh to to you know to make everything work out <laughs> and um sometimes it was hard because it's like i'd spend a week working on something for what ends up being one sentence in the book right and it's a little oh. frustrating because it's like uh 
you know, it took me a long time to write this. It should take you a long time to read it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but no, that, I ran that into was... that myself a bunch of times. Yeah. Um, now, you don't actually say what year it is in the book, do you? I don't. Uh, it is a specific year. Um, I can even tell you if you want. But it's. Um, I didn't want people to focus on that. I just wanted them to feel like this could be happening now, ish. Now, as far I think as you were successful in that fact. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very successful. And now, as far as a- in scientific accuracy is concerned, um, did you? How much near future tech did you rely on? You know, I mean, were you, did you rely on? Um, like say, uh, for example, you 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 write the solar panels. His solar panels are ten ten point two percent efficient. You know, is that is that a real number, or is that something that you had you had to make the solar panels ten point two percent efficient actually, as a future tech type thing? Well, what's funny is at the time I thought I was being future techie, but we've already got solar panels that are far more efficient. So <laughs> it's actually like. There are several well, pieces for real tech. Just say that they're military grade. They had to make them lower efficiency in order to make them ruggedized. Oh, yeah, not a bad idea. <laughs> uh, but, no, solar panels are um, – we have much better solar panels than that. Also, um, uh, in, in the, another case where the real world is, is conspiring to prove me wrong is um, <laughs> uh, the PLIS, which is a portable life support system, PLSS. It's the backpack part of a spacesuit. Mm-hmm. The thing mm-hmm. that – so the spacesuit is basically a flexible pressure vessel, and the PLIS is what you know maintains the oxygen, gets rid of the CO2, maintains the temperature, um, makes sure that you have water, it does urine collection, just all that stuff. That's all part of the PLIS. And I went to NASA a few months ago, and uh, they, they gave me tours of uh, Johnson Space Center and stuff. It was really awesome. And one thing I talked to was uh, a group working on the next generation PLIS, and they I've already long since, well, not long since, but they have already solved the problem of removing CO2 uh, without filters. And they now just have, it's just part of the PLIS. It can separate out the CO2 and remove it. Doesn't need expendable filters. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> there goes that plot device. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't oxygenate. It doesn't pull the carbons off, but it, it can separate it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that's like. Oh, hey. And then, um, yeah, that's one place where it was uh, invalidated. Oh, another thing is like all his uh, desperate efforts to make water. Um, the, the, general, the scientific knowledge of Mars at the time I wrote it was that it was like very arid. I mean, there's water at the poles. There's a lot of water on the planet overall, but the percentage of water in any given place is not that big. Well, that's wrong. Um, after I wrote the book, after everything was, you know, immutable, um, you know, Curiosity landed on Mars and did some sampling and found out there's an enormous amount of water trapped in the soil. Um, there's about, for every cubic meter of soil, there's 35 liters of water in it. Wow. Wow. So, like, all this stuff Mark did to make water where he reduces hydrazine, gets CO2 from the atmosphere, strips the carbons off of it to get the oxygen, then burns the hydrogen from the reduced hydrazine into da da da. Yeah. Or he could have just taken a bunch of martian dirt brought it inside and heated it up <laughs> yeah but then how else would he find new and creative ways of saying i'm fucked he almost dies of anxiety because he's trying to make water from hydrazine yeah. he almost dies of explosion because he's yeah <laughs> but yeah, uh, but i can still get away with it because i can say like well that's what uh, gale crater is like you know where the curiosity is but acidelia uh, Venetia, i'm saying is a desert 
You could also say that Mark just simply didn't have that knowledge at the time. You know, he's he's just not an you know, astronaut. They sent to Mars. He'd probably yeah, be fairly well educated. <laughs> well, but they, but they were only six souls into their uh, into their mission. Maybe they hadn't discovered the actual uh, water content of he the local soil at into it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, that's just one of those cases where um, science. Science disproved me, you know, after the fact. All right. Um, oh, but uh, I'm sorry. I didn't answer the actual question. Damien asked, how much did I rely on things that basically you asked, uh, how much did I rely on things that have not yet been invented? Basically, future as, tech. As, yeah. near future well, tech. Um, the real question is, were there times when you had to rely on near future tech as a plot device? You know, um, not um, as a plot device, but as a plot convenience. So some examples are, um, so like the Hermes gets, you know, is the ship that takes them to, you know, between Mars and Earth. And yeah, mm -hmm. and that that's the big ship they take. And um, Hermes is powered by ion engines that are far more um, potent than existing ion engine technology. Now, the technology exists. These are real these right. are real things. These aren't even just theoretical. These are like practical. They've made them. They've used them on probes. Right. Um, but um, Hermes's engines are orders of magnitude more powerful and effective than than the ones that are being developed. So I is I presumed that in you know for the Mars program for this you know thing they invented kind of the next generation of those. But it's 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 reasonable. It's just an extension of the technology. It's not new technology. Right. Another right. An, another one is the um, uh, the the radiation shielding they have uh, to protect them from like Mars has no magnetic field and it's got a very weak atmosphere, so the amount of radiation coming in is 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 bad. It's it, especially if you were there for a long period of time, you'd get you'd get cancer, or all sorts of problems, and so I just said <laughs> that that the the material that they line the the uh, hab with and and stuff like that is radiation is, is radiation shielding when in reality no such nothing like that exists all they have for radiation shielding right now is put more stuff between you and the radiation like rocks or lead or water yeah dig into the ground it's just yeah. yet another example of how mars is trying to kill you yep <laughs> yep so much cancer your cancer would have cancer so you have to <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> I was actually just about to say that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I found I found a lot of the characters that you ended up uh, uh, developing to to be very interesting, and it made me wonder uh, if any of the characters in the book are uh, based on people that you know. Well, um, Mark is based on my own personality. Um, but, uh, he's like an idealized version. Uh, so he's, he's, he's all the parts of me that I like and none of the parts of me that I don't like. Right. And, um, <laughs> so and he's, funny. and he's better at all the things that I can do. Right. Yeah. You, know, you know, so he's this, he's what I wish I were. He's what I wish I could become. And I think that's probably the case for most main characters. Um, any given main character in a book is someone the writer wants to be or someone the writer wants to screw. Yeah. If you don't yeah, believe you me, know, go ahead and read any book. <laughs> you know, when I started reading your book, um, I got about mm, through the first chapter 
you know, and I started getting dismayed because my book is also first person journal style and the, my character is based on me. However, what you just said is very funny because it's the exact opposite. My character is all the parts about me I hate. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he and he, you know, he doesn't know how to deal with uh, deal with anything that happens in his life. You know, he's just a really fucked up version of me. You know? <laughs> well, that's so bad. it's interesting that you say that, you know, because he is a character that I like to fuck over over and over, you know. <laughs> Well, maybe, yeah, I guess it doesn't hold true in all places because you neither want to be nor screw that guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's he's screwing that guy just in a very different way. Exactly. <laughs> I screwed Mark pretty badly, too. Screwing him over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so is he, is he um, someone you want to be or someone you want to screw? Either way, it's all about self-insertion. Hey-oh. Oh, oh. Now, uh, what about other characters, though? Like, uh, you know, Mindy, she's she's struggling with being uh, put into a job role that doesn't match uh, what she's what she's trained for. And, you know, it does seem like she feels like she's getting the raw end of of the stick. But at the same time, she's suddenly really important. Right. So that's kind of like interesting as well. She's she suddenly finds herself moving up the ranks very quickly. Um, un- without wanting to, I think that, um, so the other characters are really based on kind of amalgams of people I've known in my career or people I've been in the past. Like I, I certainly, I, Mindy was a bit of self-insertion as well. Um, no, no sex pun there. Um, she was really, uh, like I have certainly, it's a bit of a fantasy. I think everybody has a professional fantasy of being like what, what, when you first start out at a job and, and you're a low level worker, you, you like to imagine, wouldn't it be cool if I like were important? Wouldn't it be cool if I like, if I was really critical to this company or whatever. And so I think a lot of people have that, you know, fantasy. And, and so Mindy, that's, that's what happens to her, right? She's, she's a, she's a nobody at NASA. And then suddenly she's in like top level meetings and, put in charge of uh, really important stuff and and she's got someone like mitch you know going going in and saying what she gets a promotion because she was on the hot seat i yeah i i think it was uh she's a little insecure about all that and i think i think you really captured uh what it's like to be a woman working in a male-dominated field I, you know, obviously I, I identified with Mindy quite a bit. (laughs) Uh, So I have no experience. I have no personal experience with uh, dealing with that kind of stuff, right? Because I'm a white male in a white male dominated profession or, well, I was when I was a programmer. But um, yeah, well, I'm, 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 I'm glad it resonated (laughs) with you. Um, It's funny, my, um, just talking about like a woman, women in male dominated professions, my parents, both my, my rather my dad and stepmother, both worked at Lawrence Livermore Lab, um, wh- where I grew up in Livermore. And um, one of their colleagues, well, they didn't really interact with her that much, but one of their colleagues was tra- uh, transgender, um, so born male, and then um, got it turned became transitioned woman. and and yeah. and fo- you know fully oper- you know post op everything right. And so she, I'm just going to use she. To, as the pronoun <laughs> so that would be the appropriate people. pronoun in this well, case I, I don't know if it's appropriate for before the op when i'm narrating something anyway um so uh anyway she after uh transitioning 
she, you know, but she was a scientist at the lab. She was a, a researcher. And she said, like, uh, she once said, like, I knew that I had been fully accepted as a woman when the men stopped paying attention to me in meetings. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> wow. Sad but true. <laughs> oh, wow. What a fa- <laughs> That's fascinating, actually. <laughs> That was funny. Oh, all right. Um, uh, Damien, uh, I, I, I believe it's uh, your turn. We, oh, we agreed turn. that we were going to bounce back and forth uh, well, between we were questions. Talking about, we were talking about the characters and whether they were based on you or people in your life. Teddy has mild OCD. And is that a trait a of yours? No, um, actually, that was uh, that that was added in kind of uh, that the random house wanted me to do that so this is like after I, yeah after i'd written all of after i'd written the book and everything and done the self-publishing thing and then random house was there for you know want to make a print edition we went through an editing you know pass where not just copy editing but like you know creative editing and the editor julian pivia great guy um he went through it and he you know pointed out like he loved the book as it was but there he said like here are some problems right and one thing, uh, one problem that came up with most people who read the book said, like, they were having a tough time telling the NASA people apart. You know, so there was, like, Teddy Sanders, the director of NASA. Then there's Mitch Henderson, the um, flight director. And then there was, like, Vinkat, the Kapoor, the, um, uh, the director of Mars missions. And then there's, like, Bruce Ng, who's, like, the, the director of JPL. And he said, like, so... Some of the characters are easy to identify and tell apart, like um, um, uh, Mindy Park is a very unique character. Uh, Annie Montrose, also like easy, like you don't confuse her with anyone else. Also, they're women, usually surrounded by men, so they, they stand out and it's easy for the reader to tell them apart. But these kind of four nondescript men um, who are just like you see them talking to each other, he says like yeah, you lose track of who's who. Right. And so he said, go back and give each one of them some distinct personality trait that you can insert into the narrative every time they show up. And so, so for, is that how yeah. Mitch became so difficult? No, Mitch was always a pain in the ass. But what I did for him, that's was what I, I thought. Him, he, yeah, he, he, he really like I, I know plenty of Mitches. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was always a pain in the ass. But um, what I did for Mitch was I gave him the Bluetooth um, headset Um it, what, what it wanted was some sort of like affectation that each one of them could have so that you would you would immediately know who it was. So for for Teddy, it was the little OCD straightening things on his desk or straightening his cufflinks or stuff like that. And that way you might not even remember his name, but you, you remember the affect. You're like, oh, that's the guy who's straightening stuff all the time. OK. And then I, I have that logged away and I have all the context for him. For Mitch, he always had a Bluetooth headset um, playing the uh, the loop from Mission Control. In other words, all the things people are saying, he's listening to it all the time. Um, I, f- I felt like I pushed back a bit. I felt like Venkat was unique enough that nobody needed reminding on who he was. First off, he's got a very unique name. Mm-hmm. Second off, he's the um, he he's the second most important character in the story. He's the guy. He's the he's the prime mover at NASA. He's he's the guy who's running he's the guy you see the most so it's not hard to keep track of him and yeah and so bruce i always just made him tired 
Bruce is the director of JPL. They're horribly overworked in this story. And so he's always just like, like, you know, rubbing his eyes and his bloodshot eyes. And he's always like, like he hasn't slept enough. And, you know, which that's, is very consistent bad, for <laughs> my experience of uh, JPL engineers. I, I actually had a uh, professor when I was going to school. Um, very first day of class, he walked in and before he said anything to us, he just wrote on the board, uh, time, cost, quality. And he started the lecture with the iron two. triangle. Yeah. <laughs> yep. The iron triangle. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, ta- you know, optimizing for cost and quality seems to always be the one, uh, the ones that get chosen. <laughs> So the engineers tend to suffer. Um, yeah. So something stood out uh, uh, to me, and I'm wondering if uh, you got... Did you get any uh, flack for Mark being so irrelevant, or irrelevant, irreverent, irreverent uh, and, and snarky? Like when... when uh, they were discussing the Iris probe and how I- Iris was uh, the goddess of rainbows. And, and Mark fires back with, got it, gay probe coming to save me. Save me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, nobody gave me any problem with that. Um, some people questioned. Uh, yeah, so if you're talking about like people being mad that I made a gay reference or something like that, no, nobody cared about well, that. Or just they did, they just o- overall, you know, yeah. I mean, Mark, um, Mark does. Um, he, he's quite the uh, uh colorful linguist yeah um so one thing a lot of people ask is like well would a guy who's in this situation really be this kind of optimistic and cheerful i mean he 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 has sort of a gallows humor and he's a little negative at times but he's not i mean he doesn't have any like deep he doesn't appear to have any deep emotional stress for the situation and um the real reason why why that's the case is because that's not the story i wanted to tell it could it could easily have become just like a, a story of like a guy's you know constant struggle against like crippling loneliness and and overwhelming stress and and just this you know just trying to survive and keep his will to survive. But I didn't want to make a deep psychological story. I just wanted like problem solving. So I kind of hand waved it away by saying, well, you know, Mark's not just some normal guy. He was like selected to be one of very few astronauts who went to Mars. So they they probably have like psychological criteria. So he's, he's a cut above normal people. So I got away with that. That's my hand wavy explanation. I actually, I really liked that explanation that, that, you know, his ability to be a joker and lighten the mood was part of the reason why he was chosen for the mission in the first place. Yeah. uh, The uh, crew cohesion and, and um, um, yeah, because if you're going to put six people together on a mission where basically six people who are never going to be more than about, 20 meters apart for over a year you better make sure they get along <laughs> yeah so ha- have you met any astronauts i have now um at the okay. time i wrote the book i had no contacts in aerospace at all um i i was on my own and i was just all my research was with google and a lifetime of being a space enthusiast and watching every documentary i could right right but my uh my but, my uh, friend had a had a comment that that you know it was interesting that he that you were like creating this new type of astronaut, you mm-hmm. know, and, and Mark even kind of 
comments on it that he's a different type of astronaut than say the neil armstrong type where yeah. you know my, my friend's comment think... was you know neil if neil armstrong's arm caught fire he'd be like houston my arm is on fire and houston <laughs> would be like well you know go ahead and put it out and he'd be like houston i am now dis- now i'm now deploying yeah. the uh, fire suppression device Very... uh, houston fire is now out you know <laughs> do you think that this is do you, do you think that astronauts are kind of more like mark now or um, well, they oh, so the ones I've met certainly have like personality and stuff like that. Their interactions with Houston are extremely professional. Of course, when they're on a mission and stuff, there's no time for you know joking around or anything. These are important things, and so they're very clear, crisp communication with no embellishment and stuff like that. But you know, when they were talking, if they you know, I'm sure the guys on the ISS, like when they're just going about their daily business, are probably just you know. Kind of like coworkers, you know. Yeah, they are. They are still human, after all. <laughs> yeah, they're still and, human. You know, and l- let's not forget they're they're not completely infallible. But when they are on on a mission, um, we do like them to be professional. But yeah, um, and also remember, we're not really seeing um, like it, well in the book, we're not seeing Mark um, like we're not seeing much of his interactions like with Houston and stuff like that. Mostly what we're seeing is his personal log where he can speak freely and, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he does speak pretty freely with, yeah. uh, with NASA when he does get in contact. With <laughs> that too. But at that point he's just like, yes, yeah, he got a little weird after being like alone for so long. <laughs> one of my, one of my favorite interactions just left me, uh, laughing hysterically when, when he first, uh, reestablished communication uh using pathfinder and they're telling him you know clean up clean up your language it's going out to the entire world <laughs> oh look boobs yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, just, said, uh, I, I was bummed because that one couldn't come across in the audiobook hey uh, yeah it's ascii art right now now speaking of the audiobook um i i'm assuming you have listened to it uh, uh, RC well, Brace. All of it. It's like ten and a half hours long, but it's. I've listened to a bunch of it. It's really good. It, you know, RC Bray is the narrator. He won an award for it. Now, does his interpretation of the characters' voices, uh, their cadence, and and their intonation match how you were imagining these characters? Um, not always, but I thought I I I think they're very good. But it didn't match. It didn't always match what was it uh, for Mark. It was great. You know, exactly perfect. Like exactly what i imagined if anything uh rc bray bob is his name uh bob's voice is more badass than i imagined like he's actually got a pretty badass voice you know yeah but um, <laughs> but um um so most of the characters and this is a thing you, you have to do as an audiobook narrator you have to find ways to differentiate the characters uh uh when they're speaking and so pretty much you, you give them all different accents or, um, you know, uh, af- affectations of speech. And that's that's what audiobook narrators do. That's how they do it. So everyone in the story who had an ethnicity in their name ended up with that accent. Right. So like Venkat spoke mm-hmm. with a bit of an Indian accent. Um, you know, Bruce Ing spoke with a thick Asian accent and so on. And um, actually, in my mind, none of pretty much none of these people aside from the the actual chinese people from the chinese space agency pretty much none of them spoke with an accent other than vogel right 
And so because I met, uh, I, I was just like, okay, Venkat Kapoor, but he's he's an American. He's you mm-hmm. know he grew up here. Right. You know, <laughs> same with Bruce Singh and and so on. And all, oh, all, uh, also, uh, yeah, both the movie, everybody. Um, I guess I I never made it clear. So, um, Mindy Park is was supposed to be Korean. Like Park is a yeah. Korean name. Okay, you know? that makes sense. <laughs> I did but, not know that. Right, ethnically Korean, but once again, some nth generation American. Right, she's been in you know the U.S. for her family's been in America for a long time. Whatever. That's why her first name is Mindy, which doesn't exactly scream Korean ancestry, right? Um, but yeah, but everybody assumed it was like it's because Park is both a Korean name and also um, like a common English name, right? And so. I know mo- I'm, you know, per- just personally uh, know multiple examples of uh, uh, both Korean and, and and people of English descent. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah that, so, may, never, that actually makes never, perfect sense to me. <laughs> I actually I never explicitly state anyone's ethnicity in the book. I mean, a lot of it's implied from their names like Venkat Kapoor. Well. Probably yeah, Indian, that's, right? that's pretty implied. Oh, oh also, I, I have since found out from, from Indian readers and uh, you know, Indian fans that Venkat Kapoor is a name that would just never happen. Um, Kapoor is a surname used in one part of India, and Venkat is a first name used in a completely different part. They're very, very wildly different cultures. So it could happen. But Fascinating. It's kind of the American equivalent would be someone named Shaniqua Goldstein, Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like okay. the first name found in America. Goldstein is the last name found in America. But <laughs> all right, all right, interesting. So my 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 answer to that is well, his parents met in the U.S. You know. They... Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> now there was one question that both of us. Uh, uh, we're quite interested in uh, Damien. Do you want to take this one, or you might as well? All right. You defined, or well, no, Mark Watney defined a pirate ninja. <laughs> yes. As one kilowatt hour per soul. Yes. So, and this was not the only uh, reference to uh, pirates and/or ninjas in the book. So we have to. Uh, both of us are are we're very curious, Mark or Mark. <laughs> Andy? That happens all the time. <laughs> well, you just you did just a few minutes ago end up saying that he was based on you. So Andy, pirates or ninjas? Hmm. So like in a fight, you mean, or oh, or just what do I like more? What do you like more? I think ninjas. Really. Yeah. Ninjas, yes. Not how I thought you were going to go. All right. All right. Are you aware there's a big internet um, war against pirates and ninjas? Uh, between if, each other, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, you no, can go to... That's what I was... Yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, piratesversusninjas.com or something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it's a war that's been secretly uh, waged for generations. <laughs> <laughs> Long, you know, long before any of us graced this earth. Well, you should read, uh, what, Shogun, James Carville. Mm. Uh, Shogun, it has both. All right. (laughs) Very good, very good. Um, Now, 
after spending so much time coming up with uh, new ways to torture Mark on <laughs> on the desert planet, did you start feeling like sadistic? I can't speak sadistic or, you know, like like you've got the power. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's weird. Um, you know, people ask me questions similar to that, like, oh, you're so mean to Mark. Why? And it's weird because since Mark was so definitely in my mind, just an extension of me, I didn't really feel like I was being mean to some external third party. Right. I just felt like I was setting up setting up challenges for myself. So masochistic, not sadistic. Maybe masochistic. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Do you miss it? Um, writing the Martian, you mean, or what? Um, being sadistic slash masochistic to, uh, <laughs> to Mark. Uh, a little Putting bit. Putting him through shit. Well, the fun part was, uh, you know, coming up with the solutions. That's what I really liked. Actually, Damien, I'm really, uh, I'm really curious about your last question. If you want to fire that one off. Uh, the, the final 70s. One? Oh, oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> you, you have a. You you call uh, in the book you call seventies TV tripe, <laughs> but in the back of the book you you admit to actually having loved seventies TV. Oh, yeah. So I just have to ask: Do you also secretly love disco? It's not a secret. I love disco. All right. Oh, I openly <laughs> love disco. Disco rocks. And, like, um, my friends give me so much crap about it, you know, because I'm like the only person I know. Well, that's not true. My stepdad also likes disco. But um, other than that, other than the two of us, um, I don't I don't know anybody else who likes disco. But uh, but yes, I do. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Um, now, one thing that we do on Getting Geeky is, <clears throat> excuse me, um, we open up the uh, show uh, to what we call citizen panels. It's it's a feature of GabNet, the network that we that we run on. All of the shows do citizen panels, and it's where multiple callers can join and have a discussion at the same time. But because we're pre-recording this, I wanted to give people the opportunity to submit some of their own uh, questions or comments for you. Okay. Um, uh, but one of the questions that I re- uh, received was asking about what inspired you to to write about a Mars expedition. And I would say you answered that pretty well, uh, not only here, but also in the interview that's or not the interview, the essay that's included in the back of the book. Uh <laughs> But having also done a little bit of uh, uh, research, a.k.a. reading your Wikipedia page, (laughs) uh, (laughs) another question uh, that we received was, would you go to Mars if given the opportunity? And now I know the answer to this one. (laughs) You hate Uh, flying. Yeah, I I would not go to Mars. I would not go to space. as I say, I I, uh, I write about brave people. I'm not one of them. Um, <laughs> no, I, I do not have the right stuff. So I. Oh, nice! Very <laughs> nice. That is yeah. one of my favorite movies, and it's. Uh, I remember reading the book many many times when I was a child. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not that guy. It's 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 it is not a fantasy of mine to go into space or anything. I I just like, you know, there's lots of things I like that I wouldn't want to be involved in. I like. You know, I like Game of Thrones, but I would not want to live in anywhere in that world. 
Like, you want to live in <laughs> no Westeros? Yeah, you don't, you don't want to battle White Walkers in, in, in Westeros at, at the Wall? I wouldn't want to live there either. I also would not want to live under an oppressive galactic empire. <laughs> yeah, but would you want to live there? Yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Would you want to live there in the Star <laughs> if I could live in the universe of Star Wars, absolutely. <laughs> Go find some nice little planet far away. Uh, as long as it's not Tatooine or Hoth <laughs> or Alderaan, uh, yeah. It's funny. <laughs> yeah, Alderaan. You probably want to steer clear of that. Um, yeah. a, a friend of mine. Um, he ran a uh, an RPG campaign that takes place in the Star Wars setting, and um, he said, like, okay, guys, here's the deal. This takes place in the Star Wars universe. There's a bunch of stuff in this universe that just works differently from ours, and you need to accept it. For starters, planets only have one one terrain type so mm -hmm. accept it it's like for whatever reason this is a desert planet it's desert at the equator it's desert at the pole whatever get over it <laughs> and then <laughs> and then the other thing he said was like copying data is very very hard <laughs> if you want to move it you can't just send somebody a file online i don't know why they have the technology to have like robots and stuff that'll chat with you but don't know how to send large amounts of data over the internet but whatever <laughs> That's the way it is. Maybe, maybe it's the dynamics of, of the universe itself that, that can create, you know, planets that are, are deserts, you know, yep. over the entire planet. Maybe, you know, maybe there's a, a, a certain amount of radiation that interferes with wireless communication. You know? it could be. But, uh, yeah, and he's also like, okay, well, um, it's possible, you know, it's definitely possible for robots to have AI that is comparable to humans, right? But... They, there's like no there, there's very little in the way of computers right it's like everything is like you have to fly the ship manually there's no drones there's no nothing it's like so why is that i don't know because ai is different than computers except it <laughs> and it was just funny because he's just like this like whatever for whatever reason the physics of the universe worked out this way now move it, on yeah it makes for an entertaining story stop looking yeah. so yeah. deep into it <laughs> so, when you've got a bunch of pedantic little brainiacs like you know my friends it the first thing they do is say like well i'm going to start inventing the modern supercomputer industry you know or you know <laughs> in the setting of the game or it's like i think drones would be great <laughs> yeah but if you if, if you start inventing the modern you know supercomputer industry and then, then you just start getting into uh storylines like uh caprica yeah you know <laughs> sure well yeah. Uh, another thing I pulled out of the uh, the essay, you wrote software for uh, calculating orbital trajectories. Yep. yep. Well, because I wanted to know, I, I wanted to calculate the orbital trajectories and a constantly accelerating craft is that's some complicated math more than I can handle. So I did it through simulation. And um, yeah. And so, uh, well, what, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a computer programmer, right? Mm -hmm. So when the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So I'm like, all right, well, <laughs> software. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. It uh, uh, you just made me think of uh, so, some of my own experience, uh, uh, specifically when uh, when I was uh, still working on my degree. Um, I, I can't remember what, what the actual class was, but uh, the final was essentially rocket science um we we were given the scenario uh it, w it was very cold war we were given the scenario that russian 
uh, Russians have uh, launched a nuclear device at the United States and we had to plot an intercept course uh, <laughs> uh, for a rocket. And that was the final. <laughs> and sounds, not, sounds an easy, not an easy task, but it was probably the most fun I've ever had uh, taking a final. And it, and it involved uh, we were not allowed to use uh, software to do it. It, it right. was all pen and paper. It, it was well, if it's point thrust acceleration, uh, is it basically it's an ICBM? Yes. Yeah. So it's in an, it's in a suborbital trajectory. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's not so bad. Yeah, it was was quite (laughs) fun, but it would have been a lot more fun to have uh, uh, to set up a software simulation. Well, there there are lots of different intercept trajectories. I guess it depends on the limitations of your interceptor, like how much delta V you can get off of it or whatever. Yeah, it it was constrained to... Pretty much just a uh, there. There was only one solution, oh, okay. uh, g- uh, give, given the the launch warning and I, and frankly, at this point, we're talking about something I did um, more than ago, more yeah. than eight years ago, <laughs> and I have since lost those skills along <laughs> with a lot of uh, uh, my higher math. It would take me months to reacquire those skills. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't find the need uh, to to uh, calculate missile intercept trajectories on a daily basis. You know, you don't know what you're missing. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) All right, Andy. Well, thank you very, very much for for joining us. Um, I've had quite a bit of fun. Thanks for having Uh, us. And thank you very much. This was been this has been a real treat. And I, I, uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed The Martian. I've now read it, read it twice, and uh, I am very much so looking forward uh, to the movie uh, yeah, me too. Com- coming out. Uh, I, I just I, I think that's awesome and and wish you all the best of luck in the future. Right. Yeah. Keep living the dream. <laughs> Thanks for having me. That was awesome. <laughs> Oh, uh, that kicked ass. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, 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 wow. That was so much fun. Yeah, it was. <laughs> All right. I am joined right now by uh, by Damien Chaplin, Mark Thorner, and that fracking cat. Hey, guys. Hey. Uh, Hola. Uh, that was so much fun. <laughs> although i'm listening i'm listening to that and going you know like thinking about like uh maybe i should edit that part out maybe i should edit that part you know like just just little parts where like uh 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 or going back and forth a little bit but hey i think it was fine that was the first <laughs> time i'd i'd heard, i'd listened to it since well it's the first time i'd listened to it period so uh yeah i thought it was fine i just remember how much fun we were having that day, like actually talking about him. And, and the full conversation was actually maybe 10, 15 minutes longer because we were, we were going for a few minutes before and uh, a few minutes after. But I only really included uh, the bits that, you know, where he knew the interview was actually on. You'll get the extra bits on the uh, the uh, director's cut edition of the DVD available at the Gabnet store. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So, uh, going back and, and reliving that conversation, um, some of my favorite bits, um, were when he was talking about the, uh, the plus pack, um, how, how science has actually caught up with his writing and, and gone beyond it. Uh, the use of near future tech, um, is no longer uh, necessarily an issue in certain cases, especially with the uh, plus pack being able to separate CO2. Well, it must get harder and harder every year to actually write near future, quote unquote, because by the time you've got it published, it's already been, you know, we, we, we are to technology grows so fast. And then, and then you run into the problem if you get uh, too imaginative, uh, you end up with uh, an entire series of uh, 50s style smart home yeah. advertisements <laughs> that just don't line up, you know, 60 years later. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it definitely has to be pretty difficult to, to write and include uh, technological advancements. And yeah. uh, with a, a certain degree of accuracy. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and, you know, I do mine. Mine is like more way more futuristic, you know, but I still have to I, I have to worry about being disproven. And even if you are, it's 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 a work of your 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 time period. So. Well, until it's actually published, it's not a real problem. <laughs> there you go. All right, Mark, I wanted to ask you, uh, you, you had a pretty strong reaction uh, to something that Andy said, uh, and that was when he said, any main character is someone the author wants to be or someone the author wants to screw. Oh, my God. That, that that's like goes back to the first written word for mankind. <laughs> I mean, it's that obvious, you know, and it's like, yeah, he's, you know, a couple of things he went in realizing that and, uh, you know, cost accurate, you know, the three pick two. It's like, yeah, the guy's an engineer. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, but he's he had this is a tradition that I love of people who are not only creative and have a highly technical background but can write and that goes back to the core of uh you know the, what they call the so-called golden age or silver age of science fiction where you had people who were scientists and engineers who wrote this stuff and yes. they, but they happen to be really good storytellers as well that was and, that's my favorite stuff was, paul anderson it, it, and you know people like that it's their imagination that enables them to actually uh, do and understand the science and, and and push it a little bit further in fiction. But he, but Andy, he's he, he hit the grand slam of all grand slams. I'm so happy for the guy. No kidding. And, and it, it and the fact that people care about this book, and I hope one of the side effects is that people one you know go, hey, why aren't we? Why am we? Why can't we do this? Well, like, 2015 is turning out to be a great, great year for space. <laughs> yeah, it is. Space has been in the news like crazy yeah, this year. I know, but until they're building it up there in orbit and the crew's going up there, 
You know, it, it's, it's the same thing in my lifetime. This is a, please give me this one thing I want to see happen. You know, it's like all the other things that we were promised. No, but this is the one thing that is so close to our grasp right now. And it's funny because the last part of the interview, when you're talking about the math and science, the actual means to calculate ballistic trajectories, that math has been around so long. It's not funny. It's about two pages of very easy to understand formulas, actually. But, but very hard to apply. But yeah, <laughs> the application, though, is how much mass, you know, when you start versus, okay, returning. But the actual ballistics, that's something that's been around. I mean, and it's, it's so interesting because this is the one thing, the engineering and the science – the theories and the practicality have always been available. I mean, do you, do you remember the Disney Man in Space collections, um, the, the show? They're from the 50s. That's where Werner Von Braun Willie Lee showed how you could do this. Their thing was using uh, ion propulsion, these huge ships. And the thing about ion propulsion is that it's slow, but it's constant acceleration. The only thing you have to takes time. So you'd have these huge ships doing big orbits around the world, the earth, building up speed over time. And then they would just go straight, mm-hmm. you know, right. to. And, you know, it's like, great. We had the theory to do, you know, <laughs> 1950s. They were already thinking about this. And that's and, the essential technology that uh, that that the main Herm what was Hermes Salander the name of the actual craft that they were in? The, the ship, yeah, 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 yeah. That, I, that's the that's that's the principle that the Hermes is based on. Yeah, which is like yeah, because that's the technology within our reach that we can actually make practical. I I was very excited when I read that. I was like, yes, you know, he's the only the only time I remember. God, I, I don't. I want a name check. I think it was Stephen Baxter's book Voyager from uh, the '90s that dealt with a Mars mission, and it was interesting because, no offense to Mister Baxter, um, that was an interesting story. But the fact that Andy just boiled it down to man against the elements, you know, one of the most basic. Uh, conflicts of all literature also mm-hmm. man versus nature you know yeah it's like what uh man versus man man versus nature and man versus self yeah and, or the man versus society man uh, versus god yeah. <laughs> the but gods it's, but it's interesting because in the 90s there is this book and it's more of an alternate history but it also dealt with the you know okay how can we do this with available technology and it was interesting because here's this story that takes place. Literally, it could be, you know, you know, not that far forward from now. And like I said, this time it's hit a nerve and it's a good nerve. And, you know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> yes, you know. No, but do we think that it's hit a nerve um, because we've been having uh, – um science and space exploration in the news so much, you know, with, uh, uh, with 
everything that's been going on with uh, the International Space Station, you know, we had three failed uh, supply missions in a row. Things started to get a little bit tight. Um, but that was certainly, that came after a lot of the hype for the book. Um, but just looking back a couple of years ago with like uh, Commander Chris Hadfield, um, you know, playing Space Oddity up on the International Space Station, you know, it, it's something that's that uh, has been uh, recaptured in in popular culture. I think it's a, just a rip roaring yarn. I, I think it's, it's I think it's coming at the exact right time. You know, yeah, right? I think, I think it's a story. I don't think it would have the same impact without space being in the news. And I think that they're going to see a lot of numbers, you know, a lot of ticket numbers because of people are, are interested in space stuff because it's in the news right now. So I, I think it came at the right time. And I think that this could be, you know, you know, like a real kickoff. Because it is the, what they show in the in in the, what they're going to show in the movie is very very doable. Oh, we assume. I mean, we well, we, if we if we get our act together and we buck <laughs> down, we could do it easy. Yeah. Now the movie comes out uh, October second of of this year. So at, at the time that we're recording this, we've got just under a month before the movie comes out. And, uh, currently I believe we've had two trailers, uh, uh, released and, and we can already see some slight differences from the book. So I'm curious if, uh, any of the three of you actually have any concerns about, um, you know, with, with the movie coming out, uh, just under a month, uh, from when we're recording this comes out on October 2nd. Uh, if any of you have any concerns with uh, uh, the movie completely overshadowing the book, you know, has ha, ha, has. That's the dice roll. You know, you have a journeyman director like Ridley Scott. No, no, no. Someone who knows something about cinematic science fiction. Yeah. What uh, what cinematic science fiction work has he ever done that 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 we've all just absolutely latched onto? And you know, I mean, this guy's a newcomer to the field, right? No. <laughs> yeah. You. Well, In fact, I uh, actually kind of agreed with everything he's done. Prometheus. Um, <laughs> well, I just got the thirtieth anniversary uh, Blade Runner. Yeah. Well. Hey, I got the box. Anyway, um, Blade Runner was the one that did it. Alien started. Blade Runner was like, holy crap. And I'm hoping that he can, you know, you're, you're going to tell a book in two hours. That's a lot of adaptation you got to do. And, yeah, and he says the book, the audio book is like 10 hours. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, I'm going into this Miranda with an open mind. You know, it's like it's already here. You know, mem, take my money. Um, I think that people will actually read the book. I mean, this isn't Game of Thrones where you're going to have a whole bunch of people who who watch the show but and, and have never read the book and are just not interested. You know, because uh, they're not interested. They're not normally. In, they don't. They don't like fantasy. You know, but I think that there are going to be a lot of people who watch this movie and then go and read the book too. But it probably won't be the the populace as a whole. 
No, no, I guess not. But probably more than the people who flock to go read Game of Thrones. Hopefully it will uh, at least see a a very large influx of people actually purchasing the book and everything. Um, yeah, after meeting Andy and and doing that interview, it <laughs> he so I sometimes have have uh, this image of. Um, successful authors, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're sitting down for an interview with the New York times and they're talking about how <laughs> horrible their father is, but we truly have to overcome, uh, the trials and, and, uh, situations that we face in our life. And, you know, I, I didn't know what we were going to get into. And then, and then we've got this, you know, this, uh, this, this young dynamic, uh, very, very vibrant, uh, guy, you know, it, it's, it, he, he was the kind of person that, that, that you can just, he's, he seems like a friend. Yeah. I know, had and, spoken to him briefly on the phone set to set up the interview. And uh, I so I kind of already knew wh- wh- who we were about to talk, talk <laughs> to. I thought it was really cool to see him in his home, you know, because he was clearly doing it from his home. He's got his little headset on, you know. And uh, if you watch um, other interviews with him, you'll see him projected up on a screen and he's clearly using Skype and he's got the same headset on and he's yeah. got the, he's got the bookcase in the background. And I think it was kind of cool to imagine him sitting in front of his PC like I am. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's a, uh, independent content creator, uh, Cinderella story. Yes. Uh, yeah. It, it's, <laughs> It really is. You know, he, he, he's, he's living the dream. He, he put his stuff out there and, and he even made, made, made the reference to the right stuff. You know, clearly he's got it and it's absolutely great. You know, Damien, I, I, I want to thank you for uh, reaching out to him and, and making that happen. Yeah. I had no a ton problem. of fun. I, I just kind of. I saw his email there. I just figured, what the hell? And, you know, I emailed him from my phone, (laughs) 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 you know, and I got a, I got a response the next day and, uh, yeah, it was from him himself saying, sure, no problem. Yeah. yeah, That that was, it was great. Awesome. Now I I just, just figured what the hell, you know, the words they're going to say is no thanks. Did you have, uh, any one favorite, uh, part of the interview? Well, my my I guess my favorite part was you know what I called that little gem the the thing that I un, I did not expect when I asked about Teddy's OCD, and I totally expected him to say yeah I'm a little OCD. I totally did not expect him to say they asked me to put that in because the characters were not unique enough, and I was like wow that's that's really interesting that's an interesting writing tip, you know that I hadn't thought of. You know, do, are you, when you're writing a book, are your characters n- not distinguishable enough? Do you have to give them little little things like that? So, yeah, yeah. I, I, that, I think that was my favorite little part. I mean, the whole darn thing was just so much fun. Um, but that was definitely the unexpected part that I, I took out of it. I was like, wow, that's that's really cool. Awesome. How about how about you, Mark? And uh, any one part of the interview stand out? Um, um, just how 
nice, you know, just, I mean, fit, I mean, it was like, it just one of us, one of us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, uh, we'd get along comfortably. You know, it's like, what can, what can I tell you? Um, it was like a citizen panel with Andy Weir. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah, it really was, which, uh, <laughs> but, but, it, but it's interesting how, you know, I was, I was happy. At least someone made some money off AOL. sorry andy if you listen to this i have a big problem with that which maybe one day i'll tell you Um, but i was happy for the guy it's like hey that that that's great when you can just concentrate on the one thing you want to do and like i said this for him is a slam dunk you know um that's why I, I thought this was like one of the better interviews. And I've heard interviews over the years with, like you said, some writers are just like, whoa, I, I need coffee for this. You know, <laughs> you know, coffee. Uh, maybe, I need, I, I need a freaking handle of uh, whiskey. <laughs> well, there's that or, you know, you need a massive caffeine, but there, there's some people who are just, you know, riveting in just conversation you know and this, this was just like wow you know uh and i love the fact that eh, i wrote the program to figure out and i was like yeah. yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because you mentioned doing things with uh okay you have to do it with paper and then i was i was thinking what no slide rule and i had to realize oh yeah they don't give you those anymore yeah, that that was we never learned how to use them or that yeah. final, you know, because my days in engineering school it was it was still no calculators. You know, it was like, okay, but you can have pencils and a slide rule, you know. So to hear you talk about this on that level it's like wow, you know, there things changed quickly you know, as far as the way you were taught. Um, anyway, I'm, 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 I was just happy with this. This, this. this is great. I hope he comes back for, you know, post. Let's get through the Yeah, movie. maybe after let's the movie. Hey, let's see if he'll take our call, your calls after, you know. That uh, would, uh, that, that would be uh, definitely something worth looking into. I mean, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking, where's, you know, is he going to, keep writing about the Watney character or, you know, what, what, what's, what's next in this guy's bag here? Because I, I want to know. Me too. I'm looking forward to that book. He said he's working on whatever it is. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. All right. That fracking cat. Yeah. Hey kitty. Hey. You haven't said too much. Yeah. Well, I was just like listening to other people, how they talked about him. <laughs> I did enjoy the interview. I liked how personable he was. Like, you know, it wasn't expected. I was going in with the, uh, you know, is this going to be someone who's going to be preaching, you know, technical terms at us or something? Or, But, it, yeah, he seemed like a... Someone well, there are that. 13 pirate ninjas, you know, worth of efficiency at it. <laughs> <laughs> but I like how he was smart enough to know that he needed to translate this into pirate ninjas so that, you know, the, the reader would understand. And he, he, he wouldn't have to get so technical about it. Let's just call it pirate ninjas and take my word for it. <laughs> <laughs> Here, the math works. Just don't get lost on that point. We're going to move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it was cool that he... Uh, made the main character he made mark so you know 
likable and relatable because, you know, he's not just speaking techno babble all the time where you have to go, well, why do I have to go find a dictionary to find out what he's talking about? But he keeps it, well, you know, anyone can know what he's talking about, you know, to a degree, I guess. Some of it, maybe not, but. Well, these days it's really cool. You read it on your Kindle, and if you don't understand that word, you just <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah, you hold down on the word, and then uh, pops the uh, opportunity to define it. Yeah. <laughs> I like when he pointed out that, well, like the the water filtration. How you know in the book he goes in into detail about how he's trying to get water, but then in reality it's it's moved past that. How the you know near future tech is just rapidly becoming reality well and it's not it's not just that it's you know now we've we've since learned more about the surface of mars and he had that moment where it was like oh crap well that kind of invalidates this uh (laughs) well i think originally when he posted this online you know i think he did chapters at a time at a time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that Every once in a while, someone would chime in with something like, well, you know, that's not possible, or this is incorrect, or how about this? And he would change it from what I read to, you know, he would update it. And so I guess keeping it so close to the technology, so close to a possibility now, then I don't know, that would seem to frustrate me a little bit to have it already published out there. And then like, oh, damn, now they can do that? (laughs) (laughs) What I wrote is antiquated now. What the... You know what I really wish um, I had asked is if uh, he maintains an active relationship with uh, those early readers, with the people who helped shape uh, shape the book, and what must it be like for them to have seen it be, you know, go from this short story, um, you know, or that was... Uh, not necessarily a short story, but the story that was released a chapter at a time on his website. I knew the Martian website. was cool. Yeah, yeah, the, the Martian hipsters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but oh, w- what must it feel like for them to see uh, the story that, that they were, in a way, uh, that they helped shape? Uh see it grow and 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 now it's being turned into a major motion picture and yeah starring matt damon yeah and and a bunch of other people too i mean yeah Uh, we got sean bean playing mitch henderson and And he's gonna he's gonna kill that role big time and kristen wig i mean that's why the casting is like did, did I wake up from a dream? I mean, this is this is unbelievable. You know, yeah. that's why it's Kristen, like Kristen someone, Wiig as Annie Montrose is is just perfect casting. Yeah, she will I get the attitude of that character so perfectly. <laughs> and then, uh, oh my gosh, just oh, and uh, Sebastian Stan is playing Beck. Um, Kate Mara is Johansson. It, it's just. Absolutely wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, casting. Yeah, wow. Um, okay. Well, I certainly had a great time uh, doing the interview. Um, I'd like to thank you guys for joining me. This no great. problem. Thank uh, you very much. I mean, I, I guys, this was good. This thanks. Was good. <laughs> thank you. 
Thank you. Well, thanks for having a show that we could do it on because <laughs> um, it's a little long to do it on the exchange and also not not as appropriate. This is very appropriate for getting geeky in. So. Yeah. All right, Katie, you got any last words? No, I just yeah, you know, I'm going to I think I'd read that again. And I do look forward to the movie. You know, like you said, it's two hours in a like an audio book. It's 10 hours. And so they'll probably have to edit it, you know, adapt it for the movie. But I don't think they'll go. They'll stray too far off of it. At least I hope they don't. They, they probably won't. I mean, I my first impression when I was done with reading it the very first time, especially that final scene, the final rescue scene, you know, I, I, I finished the book and I was like, God damn, that would make an awesome movie. And and then they did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's uh I want to see the storm. I want to see see how how they handle that. Um I we kind of already got a little bit of an idea uh from the trailer, but ju- just the intensity of of uh Commander Lewis, you know, desperately wanting to save Watney and and having her crew you know like no the it's gonna tip we have to go we lost him you know and then having to confront uh you know that's gonna be a major uh uh, scene in the movie when she has to to you know her reaction to finding out that Watney is still alive and having to to deal with the guilt of having him left on on the planet alone fighting for his life it's uh i i I just can't wait to see how that's portrayed it's it's uh it's gonna be a powerful moment at least it should be it better be (laughs) (laughs) because it's a powerful moment in the book well and and again when you when you've got a, a veteran like ridley scott you know it it's I have a very, very good feeling about this movie. You know, the right people are involved with it. Yes. Yep. Alrighty. Well, I, uh, I, I do believe that is, uh, going to do it for us, uh, for the day. But, uh, Damien, Mark, and, uh, that fracking cat, I'd like to thank you guys for joining me. And uh, we'll talk to you a little bit later, okay? Okay, thank you. There goes our citizen panel. If you would like to uh, follow Andy Weir and and get updates, I've uh, got a couple spots for you to do that. He is at Andy Weir Author on Twitter, and his last name is spelled W E I R. He also has AndyWeirAuthor.com. So there's a couple of places for you to check out. Alrighty, uh, we are in the middle of uh, changing up our our schedule here at Gabnet. Um, I'm I at the time of recording I haven't seen the latest finalized uh, schedule but uh, well you know I will just get to that in the outro. How about uh, how about I hit the button? It's this button right here. All right, that's going to do it for our broadcast day, but we will be back tomorrow on Wednesday, September 9th uh, with three new citizen panels for you starting at 9.30 p.m. Eastern with Damian Chaplin and The Exchange. And at 10 p.m. Eastern, we've got Alex Bandis Ramble. At midnight Eastern, 9 p.m. Western, Revelstoke Gyms, Canadian content. I will be back next Tuesday here on Gabnet, a tune-in partner. 
at 9pm Western as well. Oh, I'll get it right one of these days. Hey, thanks for joining me. Thank you.